Welcome, folks. Great to uh, see you once again this morning. And we're going to turn to God's Word as we started a new series last Sunday, which we're calling Together. We're looking really what it means for us to be together as God's people, particularly as we gather in, in sort of settings, something like this. So if you want to just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and today we are going to explore some, I would suggest, famously difficult verses. And I was chatting to my, I was over in Northern Ireland this week, I was chatting to my brother and sister, just sharing the, the passage, and they, they give me the great advice, why on earth did you not start in chapter 12? <laughs> so, <laughs> but here we are, nonetheless. Um, so anyway, um, these, are, these are possibly some of the most maybe controversial passages in the whole of the Bible, and they, they really do need to be handled with, with love and, and with compassion. I'm going to read, read them first of all, and we are going to just dip in at verse 2. It says, I am, this is Paul speaking, okay, I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teaching I pass on to you. But there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it's shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for a man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory, and woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man, and man will, was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourself. Is it right for a woman to pray in, to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair, and isn't long hair on a woman's, isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. So, where do we begin? Well, most most scholars agree that these verses were primarily written with married couples utmost in, in Paul's mind. 
So the, the word men and women that's used here means husband and wife. And, and I think this helps us understand what Paul writes in verse 3 when we read that the head of man or the husband is Jesus Christ and that the head of a woman or wife is her husband. Now let me deal with this issue of headship and authority first of all before we look at the very specific things of hat wearing and, and long hair and, and the other things that Paul mentions here. When God created us, and you can read about it right at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, he created us in his image as male and female. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. This implies, John Piper writes, equality of personhood, equality of dignity, mutual respect, harmony, complementarity, and, and, and unified destiny. And the Bible clearly teaches that there is no difference in value between a man and a woman. Both of them are made in the image of God. But there is a difference in their role. Some things are reserved for women. So the obvious example, childbirth, no man is capable emotionally or physically of doing that, of course. And other things are reserved for man, for example, leading in marriage. And every culture will swing back and forth on these things. Sometimes it will emphasize one way of thinking over the other, and yet within a decade or two, that opinion can completely change. And if I'm, if I'm honest, there are some areas in life that actually would be, in one sense, much easier for us just to go along with culture rather than to go along with what the Bible says. The only problem with that, that it brings a great deal of uncertainty and instability into how we live because cultures, cultural opinions really do come and go. And actually, it's really impossible to live like that. And we, we need a firm foundation. And as Christians, the only thing that remains unchanged and on which we can truly rely on is the Word of God. So when Paul states that everything, both men and women, come from God in verse 12. He is, he is reaffirming what we read throughout all of Scripture because, because through them God has revealed something of himself. And in creating two distinct sexes and, and understanding how they relate to each other, especially within marriage, we learn something about God's nature and about God's character. So rather than undermining this, the church needs to showcase it. Now, one aspect of God's image to be shown in man is his loving authority. He is a leader. He's a ruler, uh, always doing what's best for those that he leads. Another aspect to be seen in women is humble submission. And we see both of these characteristics displayed in God's son who loves and leads his church, but also submits to his father and was was humble enough to die. Unfortunately, most of us get, get this wrong, either by overstressing hierarchy that, that men are to lead, or to go the other way and maybe overstate interdependence in our need for one another. And we, we actually rarely sort of get these two things in balance. So there are times when the church will need to be a refuge from exploitation and from oppression and there are other times when the church needs to bring balance when there is a refusal to see any difference between man 
and woman. And the root of both of these problems is pride and it's sin. It began when Adam and Eve both sinned against God. They distrusted his goodness. They they turned away from him to depend on their own wisdom to try and and make themselves happy, I guess. In, In essence, they want to be like God. They wanted to take God's place. Unfortunately, when sin when sin gets the upper hand, relationships are always ruined. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we read the consequence of sin. God said to Eve, I will make your pain in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And, and, and what we find here is, is really a statement of the struggle that exists between man and woman, between husband and, and wife, that, that has marked so much of human history. And this this curse came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, and it's a description of, of misery and, and conflict, and it's certainly not a model for marriage. Maleness, as God created it, has been depraved and corrupted by sin. To the same token, femaleness, as God has created it, has been depraved and and been corrupted by sin because at the root of sin is self-reliance and self-exaltation, which shows itself first as rebellion against God and then quickly reveals itself as the exploitation of others. So corrupted maleness produces men who try to subdue and control and exploit women for their own private desires. But also, corrupted femaleness produces women who try to subdue and control and exploit men for their own private desires. You glad you came? (laughs) So, so although male and and female are both deprived, it sort of manifests itself in, in many different ways. As a rule, men are, I've got more brute strength than women, and so they use this to abuse, to threaten, and to control them. But it's just as true that women know how to subdue him. So often she can run circles around him with with her words, and when that fails, she knows of other ways to exploit man's weakness. There is often just as much power in sinful woman to exploit sinful man as there is the other way around. But this is not the way in which God intended it to be. Again, John Piper gives a helpful illustration. He writes, it's like saying to a man and woman ballet dancer who are, who are both equally accomplished dancers and are equally regarded among their peers, you must keep harmonious execution. You must complement each other's movements. And don't forget that you are to share the applause together. And this kind of vice, of course, is very important, and it will deeply affect the beauty of the performance, but if that's all they know about the dance that they're about to perform, they won't be able to do it. They have to know the movements. They have to know the different positions. They have to know who will fall and who will catch, who will run and who will stand. It is of the very essence of dance and drama that the players know the distinctive movements they must do. If they don't know their different assignments on that stage, there will be no drama, no dance. And so it is 
within marriage. Today, it's fair to say that there is a great deal of identity confusion. Many men and women just don't know what they are meant to be. And, and perhaps the biggest problem is that we spend, we spend more time telling others what, what we are not to be, and we, we end up with confusion, with frustration, with blame. Young men and women need a positive, practical, biblical vision of, of what it is to be a man or a woman. And, and we, we, need to, we need to lose some of our cultural stereotypes. Jesus would, in fact, he, he did challenge the narrow masculine and feminine stereotypes that, that exist in, in so many churches today. And it, it's all too easy to pull down. And there are loads of critics waiting to judge when we, we try to develop a positive vision of what it means for your daughter to be a woman or for your son to be a man. So what generally happens that we, is that we just simply avoid it. The result is that most young people don't know what it is to be a Christian husband or a Christian wife. And God, God has a vision for a redeemed manhood and, and womanhood. He wants us to recover what we have lost because of sin. The truth is that who we are as male and female goes to the very heart of our personal identity and has, has got serious repercussions for all of our life. Knowing your identity brings joy to your life. And from the very beginning, before sin entered into this world, the equality of man and woman is expressed differently in the way in which they relate to one another. And it's, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning that when both Jesus and Paul used the Old Testament to answer questions about how man and woman should relate to each other, they go back to Genesis chapter 2 before the fall before sin entered into this world, rather than the sort of the messed up relationship of Genesis chapter 3. And right from the very beginning, there is a, there's a leadership responsibility that men need to take seriously, and that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, even after they sinned, Adam is primarily held accountable. Why did God not question Eve first. After all, she was the first person to eat the forbidden fruit. And the most obvious answer is that Adam was primarily responsible and accountable for their failure to obey God. Listen, husbands, fathers, you need to take your responsibility seriously because all too often this is just abdicated. We need to stand up and we need to be accountable before God. James, Dodds, James Dobson writes in his book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, he writes, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. So if this family have purchased too many items on credit, then that financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man responsible. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, says Dobson, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. So even though 
men and women bear equal, equal individually, individual responsibility before God for their own obedience, nevertheless, in relationship, man has a greater responsibility for sacrificial leadership that must not be neglected. Now, I'm aware that this is a very countercultural statement, and that not everybody is going to agree with it. But biblically, this is what Scripture appears to teach. Piper adds, The way God meant it to be before sin entered this world was sinless man relating to woman, full of love, with tender, strong, moral leadership, and, sin, and sinless woman, full of love, in her joyful, responsive support for man's leadership. No belittling from the man, no groveling from the woman. Two intelligent, humble, God-centered beings living in beautiful harmony with their unique and their different responsibilities. Problem is, we're not sinless. So how do we live this out in practice? You need to pray for understanding in your relationships with, with the opposite sex. But also pray for redeemed marriages within our congregation that, that just show the beauty and the evangelistic qualities of marriage as it was meant to be. And we need each other. I need Rachel, my wife, and she needs me. Because when it, when it comes to making decisions, together we bring balance and we bring correction in love. The truth is that Rachel protects me from making bad and, and sinful decisions. So how that works itself out in practice is that every decision that we make, we, it, it needs to be talked through in order to reach agreement if possible. And there have been times when Rachel has been unhappy about a decision that I want to make. And I, listen, I would be a fool not to listen. In fact, you, you're only leading well when people want to follow. And leadership requires sacrifice as well as vision. Actually, I really just don't want to make her sad. Let me give you an example. When I first felt the call to, to go church planting, I, I spoke to Rachel about it. She really wasn't sure, and she, she certainly wasn't ready. So for over 12 months, I prayed that if I had really heard from God that that he would speak to Rachel as well. So I waited until God called her and spoke to her. Sometimes that takes time. Within marriage, work to find agreement if at all possible. But what if you, you just don't agree? Well, in nearly 28 years of marriage, we have, I guess, I think only once not reached a consensus on an important decision. And when you have taken, and when you have talked at length, when you have given plenty of time, and you, you just you can't seem to reach an agreement, life still needs to go on. Listen, decisions still need to be made. So for us, it was, it was about moving to Northern Ireland a few years after we got married. And after much discussion, I, I, simply, I simply asked her to trust me. I also made a commitment to her that, that I kept that in two years' time, if either one of us wanted to move back to England, that we would, we would do so. And we sat down two years on that date, 
and we had the conversation and both of us at that moment decided it was right for us to move back to England. Let me sum up what I think it means to lead your family well. Be prayerful. Be servant-hearted. Be disciplined and live ordered lives before God. Be tender-hearted, sensitive, and listen. Be ready to give your life to model Christ-like living for the sake of your wife and for your family. Now, what I've said so far, I have tried to lay down some biblical foundations before we actually look at this specific situation that Paul is writing to here in Corinth. So I want to just keep in mind what I've said already as we turn our attention to the the details of this passage. First of all, looking at men and women and their head coverings. In Corinth, the most wealthy and the most respected men would, would pull a portion of their best toga over their head when they led prayers in the pagan temple. This was just, I guess, an indication of their, their high social status. In doing so, they were pointing to themselves. They wanted everyone to think, sort of, look at me, look, look how great I am. I'm rich and actually, I'm probably better than you. And Paul tells the church in Corinth, don't do this. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, do not be associated with with pagan practices. And secondly, do not draw attention to yourself, because the last place in which money or any other kind of worldly status should be recognized is in a community of judgment-deserving, Christ-redeemed, grace-bought, spirit-filled people. In other words, the church. Men with authority in a church need to point to the only true authority, their head, Jesus Christ. For women, the principle is the same, although the outworking is different. In those days, headgear and hairstyles reflected a woman's marital status. Covered hair showed that you were married, and therefore, if hair was uncovered, if it was flowing, you were very much available. So if a woman in the Corinthian church stood up with her head uncovered, as Paul describes in verse 5, she would have been drawing attention to herself. She'd been letting everybody else know, first of all, she's single, oh yes, and very much available as well. And, and this, this attitude that, that lies behind this behavior, whether they were male or female, had had actually devastating effects on the Corinthian church. Outsiders were being put off by their self-righteous pride and their arrogance. Sexual immorality was becoming a huge internal problem within the church to such an extent that Paul, Paul was struggling to believe just the depths of their depravity. Read about it back in, in chapter 5. And they were behaving in ways that people outside the church were, were just appalled at. And Christ the true head of the church, the one whose authority and beauty that we gather together to praise was certainly not glorified. So how do we apply these verses today? Well, these days men don't cover their heads to show how important they are, and and women don't wear their hair uncovered and loose in order to make men think that they are, see how attractive they are. So, so whether you choose to wear 
or not wear a head covering is in your worship of God is your personal choice. For some, it's a beautiful act of submission and just worship of God. But whatever you decide, you also need to consider the bigger issue that Paul is dealing with here. Because this passage is not really about hats. The issue of self-promotion has not gone away. So the desire to show off status or attractiveness still has got no place within the church today. Let me give you some examples, some possibilities. Deliberately wearing expensive clothes in order to appear better than everybody else. Wearing clothes or makeup with the hope that somebody will notice you and, and find you attractive. Perhaps maybe mentioning maybe a highly prestigious job from the front of church. Using humor or unhelpful comments to knock other people down. Deliberately acting in, in order, in a way, in order to make others find you sexually interesting. So don't just dismiss this passage as unimportant. This affects all of us. In verses 13 and 14, Paul tackles another issue of hair length. And Paul says it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair, but it's glory for a woman. Again, these directions are, are also connected into the culture at that time. And, and this, I guess it highlights the same principle that Paul has already laid out in the previous verses. And Paul's point is that in their culture, men had short hair, women had long hair. Now today, I guess hair length is not as big an issue anymore right across our society. Individuals has various different hairstyles and haircuts. And, and even, though, even though cultural details may vary, listen, the principle does not Christian men and women ought to be recognizable and, respect, and, and respectable in their behavior, in their appearance, and in how they dress. Remember, Paul is dealing with these issues in the context of Christian worship. His point is that there should be no distractions. Now, you will notice that both men and women are free to pray and free to prophesy. However, both of them were to do so in a way that did not draw attention to themselves, but actually give glory, give all honor to God. And Paul urges the, the Corinthians not to ignore the obvious pointers of creation and of nature. God made us the way we are, male and female. So there is a call for decency in both our appearance and in our behavior when we come together to worship God. Listen, our worship is all about Jesus. It's not a place for us to show off. Let it be Christ-centered and God-glorifying. Listen, there will always be Christians who will love to argue, and there certainly seems to be plenty of them in the church in Corinth. However, Paul concludes the matter by telling them that every other Christian congregation accepted these guidelines. So why should the Corinthians be any different? So once again, how do we, how do we apply these principles of what Paul writes here to our church here in Chester? Well, the question of behavior and of appearance is still important for every believer, especially if you're praying out loud, 
if you're prophesying, if you're speaking in church. If you are a Christian, you should be expecting to hear from God. We, we'll, we'll probably get into that more in the next few chapters, but I want to encourage you to be listening and to be responding to the Holy Spirit as we worship together. But how we come to worship, how we prepare both our hearts, but also maybe our appearance is actually important. You should always be thoughtful about the way in which you present yourself so that Jesus gets all the glory. This church should never become a stage for self-promotion or for self-indulgence. So let us be, let's be prayerful, prayerfully examining our hearts and our attitudes when we come together to worship God. But what about those who are not yet Christians? What about those who are struggling with, with huge internal battles? And I'm, I'm particularly thinking of people who have questions about their gender identity, those who maybe identify as trans, those who are same-sex attracted, who will, who will find this type of teaching particularly difficult and particularly challenging. The truth is that most of us haven't got life as sorted as we would like to think we have. So first of all, let's be respectful, let's be loving of others. Let's try to understand the real, the real pain that many people are struggling with in our society today. Secondly, there is a different expectation that is required from mature Christians who have found their secure, their, found a secure identity in Jesus Christ from those who are still searching. And church should, and it needs to be a place where everyone is welcome to come, whatever they look like, whatever they think, because, listen, everyone needs Jesus. And we, we need to be we need to be a radical biblical community that rejects stereotypes, that pursues truth with humility, that lavishes grace on everyone who fails. And as Christians, we have already many strikes against us. We are known as the anti-gay, the judgmental, the, hip the hypocritical, the anti-trans, the anti-this, the anti-that. Jesus was against many things, but somehow he had a reputation for being for people. Somehow Jesus was able to make a clear ethical stand to speak out against sin clearly, and yet to draw to himself the very people who were found guilty by his words. And we need to have wide open doors and hearts for the people that this world looks down upon, not because our teaching is weak or unclear, but because it is strong, it is courageous, it is true, it is compassionate, and it is humble. If people, especially the marginalized and the broken, come into our community, They should never want to leave. I don't think we're there yet. Preston Sprinkle writes, 
Jesus is building an upside-down community, or sorry, an upside-down kingdom where outcasts have their feet washed, where the marginalized are welcomed, where the dehumanized people feel humanized once again, where truth is upheld and celebrated and proclaimed, where those who fall short of that truth are loved. And I have to confess, I struggle to know how to stand up for biblical truth and yet show love and compassion for those that are struggling with their identity and maybe with their sexuality and, and many other things. These are difficult questions, and I'm not for a moment saying I've got many answers this morning. Sprinkle writes, people don't need more outrage. They need a fresh encounter with love. Because biblical truth will not be heard unless grace is felt. And the greatest apologetic for truth is love. And we need, as God's people, to demonstrate the outrageous love of Christ to everyone that we meet. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, help us to be like you. Lord, help us to come before you as repentant sinners, Lord, just accepting your forgiveness and your love and your grace within our own lives. And Lord, help us to be men and women who show that to others. Lord, help us to live by your word and to be filled by your spirit. And then, Lord, to love as you have loved. Lord, help us and fill us and create within us a heart that loves your people and loves our community and makes a difference. And Lord, as we stand up for the truth of your word, Lord, may we find ways of drawing others in to know you as their Savior and as their Lord. And so, Lord God, we give you glory, and we give you honor, and we give you praise, for you're worthy. You're glorious. Amen. Amen.